Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room Season 4, Episode 10. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today, in the Boiler Room, I'll be doing an interview with two separate franchisees who have acquired a combined 600-plus franchise restaurants in five brands over the past four years. These guys are among the fastest-growing franchisees in the country over that time, and both Tom Scott and Adam Diamond started with zero restaurants in 2017. They will talk about how they chose the brands they operate, how they are capitalized, what makes them unique, what they would have done differently thus far, what the operating environment looks like right now, and their growth plans for the next few years. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk. Delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. Well, we'll wait for folks to trickle in here. And for those of you who are just kind of joining, I suppose be entertained by our little little banter here. So we've all got jackets on today, right? We're all 48 years old. I, I learned that yesterday. I turned 48. So we got three 48-year-olds in jackets about ready in the middle of their careers about ready to talk restaurants. <laughs> is that the kind of thing that anyone really wants to listen to? I think we've just I think we this is like Wikipedia for middle age. Right here. We've hit it <laughs> right on the nose. <laughs> I tell you, it is I was I was uh reading up a little bit on the generations. We talked about this a little bit yesterday, but our generation gets a bad rap, man. The Gen Xers, like we're cynical, independent. We don't like other people. We don't play well in the sandbox. We don't listen to our elders. I mean, right. That's, that's kind of us as a, as a generation. Yeah. I mean, that's what they say. I think the rap is bad. We're doing okay. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Totally. Tom's not that way though. Tom's a little bit more. He's, 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 he's a gentleman. I don't know about you, Adam. I'm not much of a gentleman, but Tom is. Uh, Uh, I have been accused of of cynicism on occasion in my (laughs) life. (laughs) Oh goodness. Well, we'll appreciate you guys joining in as we, uh, as we get going here, you'll see uh, I'm on an iPad. I'm on an iPad. So I I'm looking right now at Adam. And uh, so Adam's got uh, got a beard on and Tom doesn't. And of course, everyone knows me, I guess. For those of you who will be listening to this on the Restaurant Boiler Room podcast, we just give you a shout out and thank you for listening. All the content that we're going to have here will be available. If you're signed up for the webinar, we'll email you a copy of it, of this webinar once it's completed in the next maybe 48 hours or so. That'd be number one. And then number two, it's going to be on our website too at unbridledcapital.com. I'm really excited today We'll wait another minute or two uh, to get started. But these two gentlemen represent companies that have bought a lot of restaurants over the last, I mean, I'm going to say five years, right? And really, most of it's probably been the last four years, if I'm doing my math right. But uh, collectively, they probably have somewhere in the 650 restaurant total range. And these are uh, uh, two really smart uh, gentlemen. Both of them have Ivy League education, so they're, they're fancy like that. One, Tom lives out in, in California, and uh, Adam lives in, uh, you live in New York, don't you? Or you live in New Jersey? I live in Connecticut, just north. I live in Connecticut, yeah. So they're, they're here today to talk to us a little bit about how they started the restaurant companies and what's in their future and how they did it. And they're, they're different, you know? So like one cool thing that I hope you'll find today is like, 
as I was joking earlier about we're all the same age, all three of us are 48 years old. Things have gone right and wrong in our professional careers, all three of us, I'm sure. Uh, we're probably all at the midpoint of our careers. We've chosen kind of different paths, you know, even though you'll see Tom and Adam, I'm going to ask them to talk a little bit about what makes them different from one another, even though they both run and operate restaurants, they have a slightly different perspective about how they do it and how they got where they are now. So uh, hopefully that'll be a, a cool discussion. If you have any questions along the way, all you got to do is just raise your hand. Guys, if you see any questions pop up that, you, that we want to just tackle along the way, let's just do it. And you can always hit me up with an email during or afterwards. I'll try to watch it if there's anything you want us to ask. So without further ado, it's a couple minutes after the hour. Thank you for, for joining in this webinar. And so I've got uh, Tom Scott and Adam Diamond with me. Really excited to hear them talk about their story. Full disclosure, even though Unbridled didn't sell either of these gentlemen their first business, we've done multiple deals with both of them over the years and sold them collectively hundreds of stores. And so we're honored and blessed to, to call them friends and have them as a part of this webinar and, and want to hear their stories. So, I mean, why don't we start off with Tom? Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and then like what initially interested you about the restaurant business and that kind of stuff. And then Adam, you you jump in too afterwards. How about that? Great. Yeah. Thanks, Rick. And appreciate having us both on today. So I'm, I'm a managing partner at Triton Pacific Capital Partners. We're a Los Angeles-based private investment group. Um, I've been with the firm for 18 years, which kind of seems pretty amazing when I, when I think about it. Prior to that, I have some experience in strategy consulting and as an independent sponsor focused on private equity transactions. Uh, so during my time at Triton, really been focused as more of a generalist investor, investing across a variety of different industries. But really over the last five or six years, as, as you, you know, well know, I've um, been very focused, almost exclusively focused on uh, building out our tasty brands and tasty restaurant group business, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into it in a little more detail. You know, what's you know kind of gotten us in, into the restaurant business, Triton over its history that goes back to 2001 is, as I mentioned, been a generalist investor, but we've had some areas of focus and specialization. Uh, by example, with a healthcare services group dedicated team, it's been you know with the firm since 2004. So I think over time we've really started to kind of recognize the the merits of a focused strategy, and especially in certain you know certain industries um, where you know that domain expertise really matters. It's hard to kind of step in and out you know as a single portfolio company investment. So the other sort of unique attribute I would say consideration uh, is probably the better way to put it is our capital base historically has been non-institutional. Um, and we've had a captive uh, capital markets team that we've leveraged to raise capital. And so going back a few years ago, you know, we had looked at restaurants, you know, we had spent some significant time, maybe a decade or so ago, looking at a couple of situations where larger brands were in the process of selling off corporate owned stores, you know, large market opportunities. So we invested a fair amount of time. We just didn't get anything over the finish line, but it was enough to get a taste of the business, if you will. Got a little bit, I'm not sure I'd say, say smart, but we got some exposure. But as we kind of fast forwarded to a point where we were starting to think about how we could build a business with scale that had the right attributes for um, our investor base, and we were taking a bit of a clean sheet approach to that, the QSR business really kind of kept resonating, kept coming back and pretty quickly became the center point of a strategy that, that we started putting the pieces together, You know, going back six, seven years ago. So that's really... You know, quick history on me and the firm and you know, kind of what got us into, into, into the restaurant business. But it was, at the end of the day, I think an appreciation, at least kind of high level for a lot of the attributes that we saw in this business versus you know, a lot of the other businesses that we'd had exposure to over the past, you know, past couple of decades. 
So let me see if I can say this back to you. You got more and more insane by the year until you got totally insane. And then you got into the restaurant business. Is that basically what I heard? That's, yeah. that's, 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 that's basically what you heard in a nutshell. <laughs> I met Tom first time at a Burger King, uh, a small regional Burger King convention in Florida. That was probably in 2017. And he'll tell us a little bit more about the, the, the restaurants that they own and operate now. What about you, Adam? I mean, you, you kind of got a wild, wild background, too, of insanity to get to the place where you are. Well, now I'm nervous. You're, if you're calling Tom insane, I, I, was, I was marveling at how organized his thought process seemed in terms of getting into this. Well, also, thanks, Rick, for having us and, and thanks for having me and Tom together. I came at it a little bit of a different way. My first job out of college was working at Disney in their strategic planning department. And they put me on a bunch of theme park development jobs. I didn't raise my hand and say I wanted to learn about theme park development. It just kind of happened. One of the positive externalities of, of learning about the theme parks is you've got to learn everything about any kind of real estate-based branded consumer services business. So I learned it was, it was boot camp for hotels and restaurants and retail. I went from there to Starwood Hotels, where I spent about 15 years. For most of the, most of the time that company existed and had roles that kind of mirrored the the path of the company started out like a lot of the hotel companies and the and the restaurant companies as a real estate company that dabbled in brands uh did a lot of strategy M&A real estate work and then as we sold off the real estate and invested in brands I became the CFO of the franchisor of Starwood so it kind of did every everything in a parallel business except operate but after 20 years of being in kind of large public company roles, I uh, always had a bug to be an entrepreneur. I'd love to say I whiteboarded the whole thing out, but had some friends who introduced me to some folks in QSR, and I started to see the parallels between the hotel and the QSR business model. But more importantly, kind of recognized that the, the QSR space was, and I, I feel passionately about this, both on the franchisor and the franchisee side, somewhat unnaturally fragmented just based on its history of, of entrepreneurs and how the companies have stayed separate. So came up with an idea that I could apply the skill set that I had learned mostly at Starwood and bring it to a space that really had an opportunity for some different kind of thinking and different kind of, of money to come in and, and roll some things up. And I had a good friend at Starwood over 10 years named David Tettens, who's not on the call, but whereas I can kind of do a little bit of everything but operate, he's kind of the consummate operator. And the two of us said, hey, let's go find a business to buy and went from there. We kind of took this lifetime of experience and applied it to an entrepreneurial desire to really shift gears. And then it's kind of evolved from there. You kind of get snake bit in this industry in a good way. Not many people start their career saying, I'm going to be in the fast food business. I didn't do that either, right? But here I am too, 20 plus years later, and it's the love of my life. Once you get involved in it, it's, it, it, it becomes something that you just, I don't know. Usually I tell people like you get involved, you like look at it for a year or two and then you go do something else. Or if you stay, you do it for a hundred million years until you die. So it's either A or B usually because it's so special in kind of a crazy way. Adam and I first met when he and David came down to, I was living in Louisville, Kentucky then. And uh, they came in town, I think, to, to see Young Brands. And, and then uh, we had breakfast, 2000 and maybe 17 or, or so. So both of these gentlemen are, you know, even though Tom's has a little, Tom has a little bit more history 
in the actual looking at deals and in the role that he's in, uh, both got into the business around the same time. So, all right, Tom, you're up. Uh, what restaurants do you own? Why in the heck did you choose the brand you're in? And how have you grown your business? And then, and then you're up next, Adam. Yeah, so currently we've got, I think, just over 400 restaurants in total. And our first, first acquisition was mid-2018. So five years, effectively, of kind of time from kind of when we really got, got started. So we've got 400, just over 400 across, I think it's 20 states, maybe it's 21, uh, 20 states. We're in four different platforms, which gets us into six different brands. So um, basically we have uh, a Burger King business called Tasty King. Uh, we have a Pizza Hut business, Tasty Hut. We have a, um, a KFC business, uh, Tasty Chicken, that also has uh, some exposure through KT's to Taco Bell. And we have a Dunkin' business, Tasty Delights, that um, has some co-brands with, with Baskin Robbins. So, you know, we've got pretty good exposure across the majority of the uh, kind of QSR you know, categories, if you will. So I think kind of set up perspective going forward, you know, we've got a good position, good place across you know, brands we're, we're excited about. In terms of how we, we selected brands, I mean, I, I think our overarching strategy drove a lot of our decisions. You know, we know we want to get into situations that allow us you know, ample opportunity to scale a business over time. So while there could be some really attractive opportunities in the restaurant space, you know, on a regional basis or kind of a small emergent brand basis, those really just weren't available to us, at least in terms of executing uh, the type of strategy to get to scale that, that we wanted and needed to, to achieve. So you know, we were very limited, I guess you could say, to you know, tier one concepts across the major categories. And as we kind of really worked through our process of thinking through where to start, I mean, it's not necessarily rocket science, but a lot of it just came down to where did we see the alignment with brands or the potential for alignment, where we thought that the pathway and the support for what we're trying to achieve was there. That was a big part of it. And so um, really from the outset, it was you know having those conversations, feeling as though there was the right meeting of the minds, and then the opportunity, the specific opportunity then obviously needs to, to make sense behind that. But that, that was the, the thought process that got us started. And you know, kind of from our first deal into subsequent deals, kind of followed a very similar playbook in terms of thinking through the the, the right partner, the right strategic partner, brand wise, relative to that long term goal. Which you know we made a lot of progress, but we, in our view, have have a ways to go in terms of our our overall growth targets. And so you see, thank you, Tom. I mean, I think I, I've seen all kinds of different ways of doing this for folks who who get into this business. Some go really narrow and deep into one brand and they just like, I'm not doing anything except this brand. And they just go deeper and deeper and deeper into it, which like investing in stocks and bonds and mutual funds is a strategy, right? And then some people, you know, you see kind of like have a second leg of their stool, they'll build one brand up and then they'll kind of pivot towards another and grow that one slowly, which we'll hear about Adam in a minute. What Tom and his group have done is, you know, you heard six brands, they're primarily in four brands. But uh, they're in those brands in a pretty big and pretty forceful way, and they did it pretty quickly over a short amount of time, which is, you know, very, very unique. I wouldn't say they have as many brands as, as Flynn does, but heck, it's getting close, you know, with six brands under their, their platform and 400 restaurants over a four-year period. Goodness gracious, that's, that's something. So really interesting. A Adam, what about you guys? So, so what restaurants do you own? What brands do you operate? Why do you? Why did you get into them? That kind of stuff. We until recently had one brand under the our platform, ADT Pizza, um, and we have as of last week two hundred and three Pizza Huts across nine states and mostly the South. Last month we made our first acquisition in our second brand, which was a smaller Taco Bell acquisition in Louisiana. 
once my partner David and, and me decided we wanted to to do this, we didn't have we didn't have capital. We we really wanted to go find a deal. We were really acting as independent sponsors on our own. The original idea when I came to see you in Louisville, I was looking at like twenty Pizza Huts in Louisville. The idea was to buy a business that was you know maybe three four million of EBITDA, be able to pull a club deal together and then grow from there. After getting our feet wet, we really failed up. <laughs> We, uh, uh, we we kept looking at deals of that size, which were highly competitive, ended up being shown a deal that had, you know, 125 Pizza Huts across four markets. And it really forced us into a different place very quickly. I have a long strategy background, and this is probably one of the more opportunistic things I've ever done. You can sit there and decide what brands you want to go to and what categories you want to, you want to go into. My partner and I were looking at buying broken brands that we could grow. We were looking at franchisees. We were kind of looking at everything and not making a whole lot of progress. And then around the end of 2017, you guys actually started sending us a whole bunch of Pizza Hut deals. I was like, what's going on here, right? Because if someone's selling a bunch, there's either something very wrong or something very right. We did a deep dive on Pizza Hut. We, you know, I have two little kids who eat pizza 20 times a week. So it's a ubiquitous category. It's a 60-year-old brand, but it was damaged. And coming from my Starwood background, I think if you had 10 brands and one of them was struggling, then all 10 were struggling. And I took a I took a look at a company like Yum and Taco Bell was was on fire and KFC was being turned around really successfully. And we looked at Pizza Hut and said, look, they're going to get this right. And we kind of saw an opportunity to buy a brand, really two chances to turn a business around. We could operate a really good business on the ground while Pizza Hut was figuring out how to improve the Pizza Hut brand. So that's what kind of took us into Pizza Hut. And then by the time we were in it, October 30th will be our four-year anniversary. By the time we were a year plus in, things started going better. We started stabilizing the platform. The KFC folks came over to, to do what we had hoped, which is improve Pizza Hut. And, and then we kind of, we say we've been in for four years, but we had COVID, we had stimulus, we had staffing problems. Like, to say that we've been sitting around deliberately thinking about what we do with our platform is true, but at the same time, it's been triage and opportunism. So we thankfully had our platform and COVID gave us a couple of opportunities to grow from 120 to 200. I'm a pretty gr- aggressive, I think Tom is also a developer. You can build something at a lower multiple, well, you could a couple of years ago, at a lower multiple than you can buy it at. Once we really established our Pizza Hut platform, and we are not a heavy GNA company. We outsource as much as possible. We didn't have a lot of capacity to go after multiple brands at multiple times. So we wanted to go deep on Pizza Hut. And then a year to six months ago said, hey, what's the right compliment next? We looked at Taco Bell as a really kind of stable brand that could level off some of the volatility that Pizza Hut and some of the other brands are going through. And you guys showed us a deal and we kind of said, okay, hey, let's go let's go after Taco Bell and let's commit to Yum. You know, in hindsight, the story sounds all thoughtful, but we really, you know, once we learned about Pizza Hut, once we started to sort of figure it out, we decided let's go as deep as we can and we'll continue to do that. It's not like we'll hit pause on Pizza Hut and now totally shift to Taco Bell. Now we have a Pizza Hut platform that we can grow. We want to get eventually get some scale behind our Taco Bell platform and, and see ourselves hopefully in a few years as a, as a three or four or five brand yum franchisee, depending on what they have and what they're successful with. So a little bit of a different 
a different angle, but I think I think both approaches are can work. I think it's where you're starting from and where you're coming from, and we're we're happy with where we are right now for sure. Great. A couple of things you said that I really like. One was that you looked at anything and everything to start out with. And I get a lot of phone calls about this. And if you're on this webinar or hear it on the podcast, you probably heard me say this. It's like I take an inventory of people who started really wide. And when I talk to them, they say, oh, we'll look at anything. And then I come back to them a year later and almost none of them have bought anything. Usually what the narrowing is, is not only like natural, but vital to be able to get your first acquisition. And that's what you ultimately did, right? When you got into the pizza system and in the Taco Bell world, I mean, you know, bragging on you here for a minute, heck, you're the first new Taco Bell guy to get into the system that I know of in three or four years. I mean, it's not an easy thing to do. So that shows, uh, and both of you guys have a, a healthy dose of perseverance in your blood. I guess maybe that goes to the Gen Xer thing. I, I got to say, per- persistent annoyance is kind of the <laughs> <laughs> what I would recommend. <laughs> totally, totally. Me too. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm. A, I mean, people who know me well, I'm like the most annoyingly persistent person you'll ever meet. Well, let's do a let's do a, a pause for a minute, and with a little bit of uh, more interesting stuff. What's your all's favorite menu item? Let me let me start by saying I love the gordita Taco Bell and I love the double-decker taco. Those two things, I think I could have I could have kept an entire village of Taco Bell restaurants in business in my 20s eating that stuff. And still, you know, if I get to a Taco Bell, of course, you know, we're trying to get the double-decker taco back on the menu, right? There's like this big thing going. But uh, that my love affair with those two products is, is eternal, man. What about you guys? What do you, what's your favorite menu products? Tom's got more to think of, so I'll go first. I'll, I'll do two. Pizza Hut, I'm a sucker for the Pizza Hut wings. Wings are about 15 to 20% of our business. I think they're, and I'm a, I'm a New York wing snob and I put Pizza Hut wings up against, up against any of them. And then I've actually, I've spent the last two weeks training in a Taco Bell, which hopefully you have not been served my food. I had my first Gordita. Don't go chintzy on the meat, man. I, Don't go chintzy on the meat. <laughs> I, I get yelled at for not enough cheese. The crunchy gordita with a Dorito shell, which never appealed to me like intellectually, was freaking awesome, man. It's so tremendous. That, I'll, I'll be having another one of those when I go back tomorrow for my last day. <laughs> That's awesome. What about you, Tom? With, give us yeah, something. We, give we us had, something. We got, we got a lot to pick from, right? I've got some um, soft spot in my heart, you know, on the Duncan side, just for a, a few munchkins and a nice uh, iced coffee. Going back to my uh, my time where where they were more available to me than they than they are today. But look, I mean, the, the Whopper is the classic, right? So I mean, within the Burger King business, you can't, you can't go wrong with the, the Whopper cheese or a, uh, a sourdough king. Uh, I'm a big fan of the new crispy uh, chicken sandwich. At, at the, the KFC chicken sandwich is a great, great product. And, you know, anything on the uh, thin and crispy crust from pizza, it'll, it'll do. So. Ah, you got, he's, he's very judicious. You'll see that about Tom. He's judicious. He mentioned one. And no, he's but, he's, but he's a better, he's a better marketer. He got like the key products out there. I'm oh, like, I'm totally. you, know, like you, know, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, I, I don't know your thoughts are. I'm, I'm excited for the, uh, the handhelds on the, the pizza outside. We tasted those at, I guess it was the spring convention. And I, I, I thought there was, I thought that was a really good product, at least what I tasted back then. I, I mean, I can't wait. I think it's a, it's necessary in terms of having a lower priced handheld other product line for lunch or snack or anything. And I, I really hope it's a hit. Well, I'll, tell, I'll share with you real quickly. My second favorite thing to eat is a blueberry cake donut. So, Tom, oh, there you go. And with the blueberry cake donut, sure. 
I mean, like I could. Tom, probably- I still can't. I can't believe Dunkin' Donuts are not ubiquitous. Growing yeah. up in the Northeast, I just assume yeah. we're trying to do our part. We just signed a we just signed a development deal uh, in a new market to uh, to go build forty five over the next seven years. Oh, wow. uh, so we're we're trying to do our part. That's good. That's good. Uh, that's good. How about how about that? Well, that, that's interesting. Little little personality fun thing there. So back to the questions. I'm just kind of staring down at this list, and I don't know about you guys. Like it being at forty eight, I don't see close up so good anymore, man. It's getting like worse by the dang day. It's like my arms are getting like longer. You know what I'm saying? As I look at this, what one or two things did you guys do correctly to build your business, and what would you do differently? Maybe, oops, I screwed up, or man, I hit this one or two thing, these one or two things really well. Go, Tom. What do you think? Yeah, so a couple of things, and I know this will get a little bit to just as we chat further, some of the similarities and differences, right? But I think one thing we did do, and I'm not, I'm not going to say it's necessarily that we did it correctly, but we definitely did it differently, which is we invested significant amounts on the front end in terms of people, infrastructure, at a number of different levels, right? Kind of from a back office perspective, from a field level perspective. The benefit of that was really allowed us, I think, to get to the right place with brands, right? They understood the commitments we were making. They understood what we were trying to bring forward in terms of a uh, focus on uh, how we wanted to manage and, and grow and invest behind these businesses. But that, that's not the typical approach. And I think we were maybe fortunate in some ways um, because we were able to get some momentum, some scale, and then kind of leverage that early on with some of those investments. And I think we're obviously... We'll get to this topic, I'm sure, as well. But in the current environment, things you know maybe not as positive as they maybe were through kind of the, the COVID years, where it was maybe easier to do that. You're having to tighten up in some areas, maybe think a little bit differently. But I guess for us, the benefit is we've gotten to scale now to absorb all that. But on the front end, we still needed to get that scale to support some of those investments. So we definitely put a big investment on the front end. Again, not not saying it's correct, but definitely different in terms of the approach. I would say the other thing we we kind of did in terms of building the business and. I'm not going to take any credit for this. You know, we've got, I think we've been fortunate with with great people around us. Robert Rodriguez, our operating partner, you know, has really done a tremendous amount to build the team at Tasty Restaurant Group. But even our brand officers across the different brands, you know, we've, we've been able to attract and bring in some really exceptional folks to kind of run each of these businesses. And I think early on really started to, well, they all have different approaches. The, the commonality was, I think, a, a focus on culture. And we've really taken it a few steps further in terms of, it really first became apparent in our tasty hut business, our pizza business, where you know the business we bought, we stepped into a, a long-standing business that had limited turnover, uh, but it was kind of running a certain way. But it was a very predictable, stable business, but wasn't one that was really looking to do much to shake things up or to kind of be dynamic in terms of top-line growth. But you had a lot of talent within that organization. So I think we were really fortunate to find an ability to bring talent into an environment, and we've done this across a number of deals where they could be effective. And so I think the leadership we've had and their approach to building a very family-oriented culture has served us well in terms of all the positive things that have happened across each of the businesses. That's probably the single biggest driver, I would say, of, of, of progress, of sales growth, of profit improvement where we've had it. It comes back to the people. It comes back to kind of the, the the culture that the brand officers are really trying to set the foundation for. But a lot of it's just been, as we've done acquisitions, we've been really lucky to find a ton of folks that just had untapped potential. And if you kind of find a way to unlock that, it just has a very kind of organic you know, way of driving good things. And, and that I would say, I take zero credit for, but in terms of something we've done well, you know, it's it's putting in place, I think, the the opportunity to implement that culture and do it fairly consistently across each of the businesses. 
Yeah, it's neat. As evidenced by the name Tasty in front of all your companies, right? You've kind of brought it all into one culture. You screwed up a little bit, though, along the way. I'd, I'd take it, didn't you? you, know, you know, yeah, you know, we, we, I we, mean, we, I know we, I have. I mean, yeah. Yeah. We stubbed we we our toe right out of the gate. No. So, yeah, I mean, look, hindsight, you know, it is what it is, right? Um, easy to be critical. But I think we, we learned a lot, you know, at each deal along the way. And what we thought we were stepping into, you know, in our first transaction was a deeper turnaround effort than I think we had assumed in, in terms of our, our analysis. Obviously, a situation that costs more, takes longer, a lot of lessons learned, certainly um, kind of through that process. And, and frankly, a process that continues to be a bit ongoing. It's not all bad in terms of, as you guys both know, it's hard to get into this business, right? It's hard to kind of establish the right uh, situation within uh, any brand, let alone multiple brands. And I think once you're kind of in on the other side, it's it's a lot easier to kind of operate and be strategic and be thoughtful about kind of where you take the business. But um, certainly in terms of lessons learned, I think uh, we got off to a tough start in terms of just the depth of what we were stepping into and how much fixing you know we needed to do with our initial transaction. The first transaction. Now, keeping, I'll have to say here, Unbridled didn't sell in this first transaction. So <laughs> I'll answer, Adam, you're up, you're on deck here, but let me just say something like, as I look into my life at one or two of the things that I did correctly to build our business, and I would just share, not that it's about me at all, but above all things, like I really, really love this business, the products and the people and everything that goes on. I, I love the Americana, the American dream, all of it that, that's wrapped up into this franchise restaurant world. So like, that's like the one thing I did right. I know, I know I've done that right. That's the one thing I know I've done right. Is that like, I wake up every morning and love it. Love, I want to eat it. I want to talk to people about it. I want to do it. I want to learn about the new products, you know? And I guess the one thing is just that in anything in life, if you really love something and you want to dedicate your life to it, more often than not, it'll go all right. You'll stumble along the way, but more often than not, it'll go all right. Adam, what do you got? It's felt that way some of the time, Rick. Some in of the, the last time. Four years. <laughs> <laughs> Our experience has been, in some ways, identical to Tom's, in other ways, kind of the, the, the opposite. I think we came at this, as I said, looking for something a little bit smaller. And it was kind of two guys with two backpacks and a couple of iPhones trying to convince a big brand company to let us buy some restaurants. And the person, Mike Elliott, who sold us our first deal, who, who you know well, kind of said to us, hey, how how big a business will you guys buy? And and I think we'd swung and missed on three or four Pizza Huts that were the size we thought we wanted. And I said, you know what, we'll buy something as, as big as Pizza Hut will let us. I think we ended up a little bit biting off a little more than we could chew right, right there at the beginning because matching two guys with two backpacks with four state operational turnaround we were the opposite of tom we had no, you know we had one hr consultant we had a finance consultant we we literally had nothing but the people in the business and while the people in the business uh, were awesome and we've found the right ones and we've elevated them to positions of leadership and we couldn't be more proud of what we've built today for that first year we kind of we thought we knew what we had to do but there was no leverage to getting it done so you know, if we had done what we're doing now on the Taco Bell side, we found a deal that has mid-teens restaurants, very tight geographically, performing well financially with an outstanding director of operations that came with it. That business is, if you ask me, what would I do if I could do it again? That's how we intended to start. But if we had done that in the beginning, we wouldn't have the scale that we have. So certainly I would have, there may be a happy medium between 
you know, building out a large organization if you don't have any capital, because we did not have any capital and just being two guys and two backpacks. Cause I think we, we left because of the time it took us to kind of get our arms around the bear the first year, we weren't quite as far ahead as we might've been when COVID hit and who knew COVID was going to hit. I always say that I'm, I'm brilliant because I decided to invest in a delivery and carry out business right before COVID. It's like, you know, dumb luck. But we were lucky that we had we had that year and that Pizza Hut had taken price up to take advantage of it. But those were market forces and brand forces that really carried us through. And now that we've, not that things have totally calmed down, but now that things have settled a little bit, we're making a lot of those investments that maybe Tom made in the beginning. Right? I just got off a call. We're doing a a seven market road show where we are retraining every one of our employees. We've had 200% turnover per year in the last two years. People are going through a training course. They're getting on the front lines and they're going. We've hired a VP of training, a director of training. We're putting training resources all around the country, all around our markets to retrain everybody to get over that hump of staffing, quitting, staffing, quitting, because we think we know people want to be trained. We know they want to be happy at work. And we know that'll that'll lead to retention to something Tom alluded to. That's a hard thing to invest in right now. It's very hard given what we're lapping from last year and given yep. inflation to go invest significant right. dollars in GNA. But we're making that investment because frankly, we haven't had the time or the, the headspace or the energy for the organization to be able to absorb it in the last couple of years. So okay, great. We figured out we have to start training four years into the business. It didn't take us that long. It just took till now for things to settle down enough for the organization to be able to absorb it. That requires a long-term, you know, I'm sure this is one of the questions later, but like you don't make a huge investment in training if you're if you're only going to be doing this for another year. Like it requires a belief, which I have, that we're going to push through this cycle and get get through to better times. Again, all of this is like so so clear in hindsight. I think one of the a key takeaway and people all the time they're like, oh, I want to do that. I've thought about going into franchising. I'm like, go for it. But I think what 40-year franchisees have told me is that what we've experienced in the last four years, they've experienced every piece of it, but they've never experienced it all at once. So could we have possibly known that that's when we were starting? No. Do you roll with it? You sure do. But it, sometimes it forces you to, to build your organization in a different sequence yeah. Uh, than you might have initially thought or that a, a business school case might tell you to do. You thought you, you were wanted to join the Navy and then they grabbed you by the back of the head and threw you into SEAL, seal training day one, exactly. basically, is what you're saying. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah. And so this restaurant business, man, everyone is just making so much money. They're just, I mean, money is just flowing out of everyone's pockets. And it's, and it's the, stable and it's all stable, and, stable cash the, flow. <laughs> and everybody is getting so wealthy and golly gee, it, you know, you'd be, it's like buying Bitcoin, right, Tom? Is that, is that the way we think about this business? I'm not, I'm not sure it's exactly the way we're thinking about it. <laughs> no, it's what's interesting, you know, I mean, it's sort of, it kind of just came out some of the commentary, but I think as I was sort of reflect on what, what Adam was saying and, and sort of our own experience, there's so much focus on the brand selection. But honestly, I think the initial platforms, like the, the actual the actual business you're buying matters. It matters in a meaningful way, right? Because you know, our experience in, in Pizza Hut, we're probably now at a very similar place together, right? But like where Adam started, where we started, I think a lot of it, the brand's a brand. And, and, and you got started in Pizza Hut a little, little sooner than we did. It's hard to time a bottom, but you know, your, your timing in hindsight was probably 
good, right? It was well before a lot of folks were, were, were focused on the brand. We were fortunate as well. Um, we kind of came in even a little closer to, I think, the, the trough of the, of the brand in terms of its own performance. But I think the difference is if I look at our pizza business, which you know well, right, because you represented the seller, it was a, a very, despite what was going on in the brand, it was a very stable business. And they had just a lot of uh, sort of history, stability at, at sort of all levels of the organization and performance-wise. And so I think that's important, right? Because as the brand then started to kind of go through its its improvement on number levels and COVID hit, we were able to really accelerate what we were doing. I think Adam did the same thing, but he had a little more work to do to kind of get things kind of foundationally set before he he did did, did a lot of the same things we did. If I go back and look at our initial transaction, you could sort of point to brand you know issues, but brands brands go through cycles, right? The brands were all in and, and focused on. I mean, these are brands that over time they figure it out, they perform. And I'm confident that that will continue to happen and, and see it happening across you know a lot of the different brands we operate within. But what's hard to fix is some of the sort of the, the issues within the the core business you're buying. And I think that may sometimes get lost a little bit within the kind of focus on the brand selection. It's it's that's critical, but I think strategically understanding what you're stepping into is is a big part of it as well. So what Tom just let me interpret yeah. what he just said. He said it's not a get rich quick scheme to get into the franchise space. It's a lot of hard work and it's a long term situation, right? I mean, I I know I know I'm putting your words in your mouth there, but you know, sometimes people come into it thinking the opposite and they get popped in the head. In terms of you two guys, you're a little bit different in the way. Yeah, I mean, the audience here already sees some differences, you know, from what from what we've been talking about between the two of you. But talk about a little bit more about how you're capitalized and stru- that structure that might maybe lay out a little bit of the differences between the two of you. Yeah, so uh, I'm happy to jump in if you want. We've got two different. So under our structure, we have a, a captive management company, Tasty Restaurant Group, and that's really the, the back office support and, and kind of all the leadership that we use uh, to support the, the brand businesses that we're operating in. Uh, the brand businesses themselves are capitalized with with equity from Tasty Brands and Tasty Brands 2, which are vehicles that were set up uh, with capital that is 100% committed to this strategy. So we have kind of dedicated, committed capital focused on this QSR strategy across currently two different vehicles and a path to layering more capital as it makes sense onto that going forward. And then we really structure each of the operating businesses you know, independently. So um, each of our brand businesses has a separate capital structure, different lenders, debt providers, most of those kind of traditional franchise finance. I, mean, I think one case we have more of a FinCo structure. I think the, the form and structure is really just dependent on where we are in terms of the stage and, and the needs of an, an individual business in terms of what we're trying to solve for from a growth standpoint. So that's that's how we're, we're, we're structured. Yeah, good. What about you, Adam? We're pretty traditional. I mean, we, our first deal, we I guess we went backwards. We found the deal, then we found the debt, then we found the equity. And much later in the process than I than I probably would have would have fire liked. ready aim fire ready <laughs> aim shoot or whatever you know what I mean uh, yeah totally we must and and the seller had to know we must have paid way too much but we have some very uh, loyal and kind friends and family who own a little bit of the company but most of our most of our equity is owned by Bain Capital Credit and how we got to them because Bain Capital the equity arm would more traditionally invest in in deals like this but we. We had the debt, and we were we were looking for a mez piece to kind of shrink the equity need. And they looked at it, and they had some room for equity in their capital structure. And they had some folks who had experience in QSR and pizza specifically who decided to uh, make the equity commitment. So, ADT Pizza, ADT Investment sits above it. Was funded once with that one deal. It was kind of a one-time investment. 
it's a little bit of a weird structure. I'm kind of the GP and the CEO and they're the LP, but they really are a fantastic partner. And we've been able to grow without incremental equity. We also haven't distributed any out. So they continue to be our large majority equity partner as we grow the Pizza Hut business. It's been the, it's been the same structure. We've just modified the debt and continued to pull businesses in. And then on the Taco Bell side, we set up a separate ADT Taco entity that has separate debt against that. But both with traditional term loan finance with players you're all familiar with, and then the same equity holder up top. So the advantages of that are there's no real, I don't have a gun to my head, not that Tom does, to, to go put money to work. And we have an incredibly supportive equity partner who's been there through, obviously, an incredibly volatile time. Um, at the same time, as we grow, we have to work with them on how exactly we're going to accomplish that. And our first couple of acquisitions, um, because the business was growing so fast that debt was able to accommodate our acquisitions going forward. I think it'll be a little more reliant on new equity. And that's something that we're working through kind of as we speak. So pretty traditional. I, I appreciate both of you all sharing that. You know, for those of you who are franchisees who listen, especially maybe mid-sized franchisees, for these two gentlemen here, you know, their structure uh, different from one another, but not, you know, not like an enormous surprise, but it's way different than what it used to be when in the good old days, in the last six or seven years, as these businesses like these gentlemen have been acquiring start getting consolidated, it becomes, in most cases, a, a game of the, of the larger franchisees no longer owning 100% of their businesses and having no outside help with their equity because the, because the dollar values just get too high. But, I'm, but, I, but it gives me pause to sit and think about it. You know, when I was a young lad in this industry, and, and there are very few folks like you all, and it was mostly mid-sized operators who may have had like a brother in the business and the two of them built the business and operated it and acquired small franchisees around them and went from eight stores to 15 to 25 to 32. And then eventually they got too big for the britches and they had to, and then these ideas came up like sale lease back, which we can talk about that, but it's not the best for some people, a good idea for others. And some of these other creative structures came up and then we started getting partners and then family offices and private equity people. And it's really snowballed on itself. So I, I, if you've been listening and, and you've been around a long time, it's really a neat transition. At that point, we stress to our team members all the time that my partner and me do not own 200 and <laughs> 220 yeah. restaurants because there is a perception that, we, yeah. that, that we're just the owner and that shift is not something that's obvious to your team members. And for reasons I don't, I don't need to go into, we, we want our team members to know the truth that we're investors and operators and not necessarily, I would love to have been one of those guys who, who bought in 40 years ago and owned hundred percent of my business, but we've definitely, definitely today's environment, which I think is, is more similar than other industries now forces a different approach. You ever think, and this is off script, do y'all ever think there'll be a, there'll be a time frame when it goes back? To the good old days, uh, where you know M and A, uh, you know things uh, get consolidated and then they split back up. Just like you played basketball in the early two thousands with shorts down to your ankles, and then in the nineteen fifties, they're all the way up to your upper thigh. You know what I mean? You, do we see a, a trend that does the opposite of what's been happening? Will that ever happen again? You think? I think yeah. for the brands that have allowed institutional consolidation, the horses left the barn. Like I, I don't know. I think I think money. Money flows where there's opportunity. And I started this out by saying yeah. that it's not as awesome as the franchise industry has been for the achievement of the American dream. 
for a business to be fragmented and stay fragmented is kind of counter to, to economics. So I think when you see brands and they're out there and we know who they are, who have limited ownership to one or two, one or two restaurants, and they've really kept it that way, they can keep it that way. But I think for, for the types of brands that have allowed, not allowed, but also seen the value in, in what, what the capital and management, hopefully skill that people like Tom and me bring, I mean, never say never. I think it's, it's tough to see how that reverses itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with Adam's comments there. I mean, I think you, get, you can get all the nuances of some of those other other brands that, that may be able to be a bit more fragmented. In some cases, those brands have significantly higher AUVs, right? So you can operate differently potentially in a few of those brands. And but yeah, yeah. I mean, look, there's too much. I think there's too much buy-in kind of from the brand side on kind of understanding you know if they can get the right combination of operating expertise and capital in, in the form of partners and have a more consolidated network, if you will, there's a lot more they can get done more quickly across the system. And I think that's really the key. Different brands are at different stages. Some need you know, different things from the franchisee base to, to address asset actions and grow. But kind of by and large, I think the ability to have groups that can efficiently kind of manage, optimize, you know, develop within a certain geography, um, I think makes a ton of sense as, as I kind of put a, a brand hat on. Yeah, yeah, no doubt that's right, especially from the franchisor level. Well, let's pivot a little bit. How are things going right now in, in operating environment? I mean, what's it what's it like? I mean, you know, it's uh, it's been a bit of a rough year. Care to give us some just some thoughts? Maybe Tom then Adam. Sure. Yeah. Look, it's it's no surprise. It's been a real challenging environment since you know late last year on a number of fronts. But you know, when you kind of boil it all down, I mean, it's all about inflation. Um, and it's all about not just inflation, but how much and how quickly. I mean, I think one of the things we've always liked about the business, I mean, core to our thesis from day one is the resilience, kind of the the outperformance relative to other sectors during recessionary periods. And we still firmly believe that, right? I mean, we, you know, wasn't a recession, but you saw the benefits of, you know, the carry out and drive through business during COVID. If you go back over time, the data support, certainly kind of the, the trade downs and, and how QSR can perform. I think one of the issues you have right now, though, is you've got the value component of the business, which certainly helps bolster kind of during recessionary periods, is under more pressure because of, of the, the inflation side of the equation. And so you can pass through price, and, and this business is great in terms of your ability to pass through price, but you just can't keep pace with the rate of inflation taking place. So while we've been trying to be thoughtful and increase price across you know, all businesses where it makes sense, that gets you to a certain place, but you know, you're know you kind of looking in the rearview mirror. So you're, you're continuously playing catch up until we get to a more stabilized environment. No crystal ball, so don't know kind of how long, but clearly we're going to be operating for a little while longer, uh, minimally at kind of those elevated levels. So I think over time, you can continue to pass price on, but then the question is, where do you start to bump up against check price, average check that starts to you know, have, have sort of the opposite effect on the business? So net-net, I think we've managed it as well by and large as we can, not perfect by any means, but even with that, there's still compression in the unit economics, right? There's compression at the four wall. You know, if you don't address GNA, you know, that flow through that is so great. <laughs> we all experienced when sales were booming, kind of goes the other way on you. So I don't think it's any different for us, I'm guessing, than it would be for, for Adam or anybody else in this business today. There's maybe differences across brands, differences across you know, businesses and stores, but by and large, there's definitely a compression that that is there. I do think it'll alleviate. I do think you'll kind of get back over time, but there's a process that we're all going through here that we're probably still mid, mid-innings on. Yeah, it's good. Adam, before you answer, I just add, 
some of you on the, are familiar with the California legislation, the FAST Act legislation that's recently got signed by Governor Newsom, and it has some pretty deep potential uh, implications for the fast food industry in California. And so uh, this is a forever the salesman giving a pitch here. If you are in a state that goes the way of, of California after California makes changes and you operate in those states, be mindful of, of what an impact of $22 minimum wage would have on your business. And if legislation gets enacted, I, we took, you know, there's an assignment we took at one point in time up in Washington, goodness, right when Seattle hit $15 an hour and the business was in bankruptcy in three months. So now the business is out of bankruptcy. They're able to raise their prices over time and they're doing, they're doing great, I'm sure. But to your point, Tom, you can't, you know, like it's hard to adjust, you know, you can't pass it on to consumers and how much are they going to, how much are they going to, I mean, like, you're going to go get a $15 Whopper meal. I mean, are you going to do that? Like, I, you know, are you going to eat a $10 number three on the on the Taco Bell menu? At some point, the pricing kind of gets concerning. What do you think, Adam? What do you think about all this? I think you just said a lot in a very short period of time, Rick. Um, <laughs> 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 I, mean, <laughs> I can I think, do that. <laughs> by the way, this is not a direct comment about about minimum wage, but what, what I think has been so fascinating—I'm going to go off talk a little bit. What's so fascinating about this industry is that the consumer and the team member are really the same person. So we had like stimulus checks go up. Everybody spent that on pizza, but people started working less. So you have this weird situation where. When demand is high, your labor supply is lower. And then when demand starts coming back down, your labor supply starts going back up again. So obviously, we're living in the same macroeconomic environment as Tom. And I think we knew sales were coming down post-COVID, right? It just wasn't a natural level uh, for sales to stabilize at. And we were prepared for that. I think what we weren't prepared for was sales to come down and then costs to come up as rapidly as they did which in turn becomes a double whammy on sales because folks are paying for gas instead of paying for pizza. Just because I'm so new to Taco Bell, I'll use Pizza Hut as my example here. I think Pizza Hut and we have done a good job looking for other customers. So in the beginning of July, we we turned on like Uber Eats and DoorDash and Grubhub, and it's added you know kind of mid to high single digits to our business. So even though we're losing traffic because we're raising prices to our core customer, we're going out and finding some new customers. And that's that combined with the comps easing from last year has kind of allowed us to stabilize. And when I say stabilize, I mean stabilize against a pretty rough half, back half of last year. So I'm with Tom. I think we're, I'd like to say we're middle innings. I mean, inflation, deflation doesn't really happen. So the question is, when will prices stop going up and when, how can we moderately take price to catch up? But then I think the the third whammy that I think we've that is separate from the operating business is this little thing called interest rates. So we refied in March and we have to hedge half our loan. Our old loan was was hedged at 0.16%. Our new loan is hedged at 2.5%. So our blended cost of capital as of today has probably gone up by, I don't know, 350 basis points. So you have the negative leverage on the operating business. And then you have interest, which is going the wrong way. It requires really good lending partners, which we have, really good equity partners, which we have, really good management, which we have, which says, hey, this is, we were loving it when things were great. Things aren't so great right now. We got to keep investing. We got to look at this as a long-term business. 
and, and I talked about our training investments, not do anything rash because I think if you just looked at the data, you might do things a little more drastically than, than you want to. But I hope Tom's right. I hope it's middle innings, not not early innings. We don't look at our peak in 21 or mid 21 and say, oh, we're going to get back to that in two years. We, we don't look at that as a peak. We say, how are we going to get back 10, 20% of our business in the next two or three years? And I think if we did that, we would see that as a, as a win. Because right now we're on the edge of where if things go up, it flows a lot. And if things go down, it flows a lot. And I think we need to hopefully get over that hump as quickly as we can. Yeah, it's a clear, clearly a good point about interest rates and probably too tightening of credit, right? So we just did, and I'll send this out, you know, everyone will see this soon, a lending survey, 14-question lending survey asking all kinds of crazy things. And the results are really interesting. But one of the things I noted was I sent it to 300 lenders in June and then the same survey in October, and 45 of the, of the 300 emails came back undeliverable within a three-month period. So the informal Rick Ormsby index, you know, whatever that index is, is saying, oh, crap, the lenders are bailing from the from the space a little bit because of the conditions. And lenders look in the rear. They look in the rear mirror. They don't look forward very well. They look so they're behind us three months, typically. So we see things before they do which means to me, the tightening is going to continue uh, to your point. Well, okay. I got, I got um, one 30 second question for each of you, if you can do it. And then we're going to ask a question about the world series. So the question, the question for Tom is what keeps you up at night? It could be anything. You could say little green people running in the field. What, uh, what keeps you up at night, Tom? Yeah, look, I think we just hit on it really. It's the, the dynamics in the current environment and just not having the full playbook of all of the different pressures and, and kind of when those, likely play through how they play through and kind of you know, managing against that. Right. I mean, I think we're, we're hyper-focused on it. We're um, spending a lot of time on, on it. You know, I think we're, we've got a lot of things well situated in terms of, you know, team and, and structure and support, but just those external in, influences on the business right now, your ability to build a plan around that, given some of the uncertainty, I think that's, that's probably the single biggest challenge right now. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. What about you, Adam? Quick yeah, answer. I, I think it's the unknown unknowns, right? Like, Russia and Ukraine was not something that we needed in the past nine months. Like, so I don't lose sleep over inflation or wage rates or people quitting or price sensitivity of consumers because I, I know about them. I'm not happy about them. It's what's next that keeps me up. Uh, you know, and this may, this are my answer to this would be, we are, I, I always want all of the franchisees to be successful. So, you know, sure, in our business, you can make money doing distressed deals. I don't like to do those kind of deals unless we absolutely have to. We want all of the franchisees to do well. So that's that's what keeps me up is that like, gosh, if you guys are not doing well, you know, I'm worried. You know what I mean? So I think we all are hoping that, that things will improve a little bit. Who's going to win the Super Bowl? I'll start. I grew up as a young Braves fan back in the 80s watching TBS and Dale Murphy and Bob Horner and Claudel Washington. You remember any of these names, man? Pascual Perez. And, All of them, man. I mean, these guys, I mean, they were a bunch of scrubs, but I, but they were always on TV. So that was my team. So I'm rooting for the Braves. What about you? Dale Murphy wasn't a scrub. I, I'm a I'm a diehard Yankee fan. Uh, yeah, so. One of those guys, man. No, I'm not. Hey, man, I grew up I grew up in the 80s. We didn't win any World Series to go to the playoffs. I, did, I stuck with them. I'm also a Jet fan, Rick. So I have okay. that lends okay. any credibility to my sad it does. story. I, it I does. get my pleasure and my pain. 
<laughs> Tom, I'm guessing you're so, going to root for the Dodgers. So, well, I'll say Dodgers because I, I do live in L.A. and it's, I guess, my adopted National League team. But the, re- the real answer is I got to take the, the opposite of Adam, which is anybody is fine other than the Yankees. As a, as a, as a Red Sox fan, as a Red Sox fan, I've got to take the other side of that. Good. That's fantastic. We find something you guys don't agree on. and Maybe we can like start picking at each other over it. Exactly, That'd be exactly. a fun thing to do. <laughs> Gentlemen, it's been an honor to have you. Thank you for everyone who's listened and watched. Uh, again, we'll send out this information out via email and it'll be on our website. The webinar will be. Uh, wish you two guys and your businesses nothing but tremendous blessings and success and continued growth. Thank you from everyone at Unbridled for, for joining us and being, being part of our story too. We really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting us. This was fun. Yeah, thanks, Rick. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Y'all be good. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors, LLC, give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.